if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. <laughs> that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Man, what a, what a great way to start. By the way, you know, the experience in the edition is different than in here. And uh, as I stand up front, I'm thinking, I, I hope they're getting there what we're getting here. How encouraging. Hey, Ken talked about, so this is about a trial's leading to joy, but I want to start out by stating the negative. Do you, do you know that in life, your life is going to be filled with trouble? Do you know that? Is that our operating principle? You remember what Job said, as surely as sparks fly upward, that's how dependable trouble is in your life and mine. It's not that trials or troubles are a question mark as to whether they exist, they do and they will, but it really has to do with what do we do with them? How do we view them? What, what, what should we think when the bottom falls out or the next trouble or trial or challenge or temptation comes? What do we do with it? How do we view it? How do we think about it? So we're in a passage this morning in James, James 1, you can turn there. Your Bibles are your apps. James 1 talks about trials and troubles, and he frames it in a way that shows us why God chooses to allow those in our lives, that they are redeemed in God's hands for Christians in a way that is not true. If, Christ, if you don't have Christ, it's not true. But for Christians, God is using challenges and trials and temptations. You can say like the potter handles the clay, or a woodworker or a carpenter is chiseling wood. He's fashioning us, and one of his primary tools is trials, challenges, and temptations. That's what James brings up this morning. So it's really, it's not a question of if they will come, right? It's a question of when and how and what that looks like. The question for us is how do we respond? So when the bottom falls out, how do we respond? And guys, I just give you my confession on the front end. I, my temptation in the past has been to despair, that the bottom falls out and the thought is, Lord, there's no way to win. Doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter what I do. You know, th things are going on that I don't control, and so there's a temptation to despair. Well, that despair is unbelief, and that's a failure in trial. And that's not to pile on myself or anybody else for whom that's sort of the pattern, but it's a failure to see what God wants to do with it. And so, my hope this morning is that the next thing that comes up, or maybe for some of us what's going on right now, that from what God says through James this morning, it changes the way we think about it. And if it changes the way we think about it, it changes the way we see it and we respond. And it, we can see it as something not good in and of itself, right? Because usually we're talking about bad things, things we wish didn't happen, but that in God's hands, they're turned around for a redemptive purpose. It can change the way we see that, how we respond, and really our experience in all of that. So instead of going through with this sense of despair, I could say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're committed to some things, and that's what we'll see this morning. And so I can rejoice in that, not in the pain, the suffering, the trial, the temptation, but out of the promise you have for doing something positive and redemptive with that. Okay, so James 1, we're going to read through 1 through 8. If you remember last week, if you were here, or perhaps you weren't, but we said the book of James, five chapters is really a reality check. And James is writing to Jews who had come to believe in Jesus, 
and they've been driven out of the area of Israel from persecution. And so they're not, they're not waiting to hear a message of salvation. They say, Jesus is our guy. So we get it. He's the Messiah. We believe in Jesus. But James says, but you don't live like it. And so that's the whole thing. It's a reality check. And so the first reality check James brings up is, how do we respond to suffering? How do we respond to trials, troubles, temptations, and challenges? It's the first reality check. So we'll read 1 through 8, and then we'll come back and we'll look at uh, three big rocks. James 1, uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, those, those Jews who've been driven out through persecution, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, and by the way, this is a shift of topic about the same thing. So this isn't a new topic. This is wisdom applied to the trial, the temptation, the challenge. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So before we get to the big rocks related to trials and temptations, I want to look at the the introduction line, just verse 1, for just a minute. Last week we said, you know, we went through the hit list, very short hit list, of who this James might be, and we concluded this has almost got to be James, the brother or half-brother of Jesus. And yet when he starts his letter, he says nothing about that. He just says, James, a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he could have said, and I'm Jesus' brother. Or he could have said, and I'm Jesus' half-brother. He could have name-dropped, right? Or he could have said, and by the way, I grew up with that guy that you call God and Savior. That's the guy I grew up with. I'm just saying. He could have, he could have identified himself through that relationship of birth he had, right? And on all the earth at that time, Jesus had at least four brothers, and we know he had at least two sisters because it's listed as a plural, so that little elect group were all on the, on the globe that could say, Jesus was my physical brother. I grew up with him. And James doesn't say anything about it. And it's interesting, if you turn just a few pages in your Bible towards the end and you get to the one page, one chapter, letter from Jude, listen to this. Jude that we also assume is a half-brother of Jesus. Listen to the way Jude says it. He introduces his letter this way, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So I'm a servant of Jesus and I'm a brother of James. Now, he identifies himself by his better known brother. And we looked at some texts last week that showed, you know, James was a, he was a, quite a leader in the church in Jerusalem. So he doesn't say, and I'm Jesus' brother. He says, but I am James' brother. So you'll know what Jude, Jude or Judas, again, was a, a very familiar name, common name in that time. And so he says, he identifies himself to the folks he's writing to, not by Jesus, but by James. That will identify him enough. So guys, why don't they say we're Jesus' brother? Why don't they name drop and just put that out right from the beginning? 
this is Mike's conclusion. It's not so much about their first birth and the relationships that brings as their second birth and the relationship that brings. That is, it was less important that they were related to Jesus by the blood of first birth than that they were through the blood of his sacrifice and new birth or rebirth. And they are a prime example that it's less important what our family of origin looks like than what our forever family looks like. So that we want to say, you know, there's, a, by the way, some testimonies this morning. It's great. You hear, I was raised in a Christian family. I heard the gospel when I was little. And that is no small thing. That is a great blessing. But you know, you can grow up in a lovely Christian household and never repent and never trust Christ and suffer for your sins forever. Be related. You could be one of Jesus' siblings related to him by natural birth and never be saved. You could grow up in a miserable household, an abusive household, and never repent, and never trust Christ, and it's the same end. The issue for them and for us is not where we start, it's where we end. It's not who we're related to in our family of origin. As good a blessing as that may be, or as bad as that might be, your, your starting point, your family of origin, does not determine where you end. And we don't want it to. It doesn't matter what the best of families... Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, my Roman Catholic growing up. I saw a t-shirt last night, and it said, uh, the Holy Family pray for you. And it was, you know, a picture of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And, you know, Roman Catholic, I grew up with all that. You know, the Holy Family. But you could have grown up in the Holy Family as one of Jesus' siblings and and not spend eternity with them. Amen. So it's not, it's not that point of starting, no matter how good it is, no matter how bad it is, it doesn't, it doesn't have to define who you are or where you spend eternity. So James and Jude, they're not hanging on Jesus as our brother by birth. They're hanging on Jesus as my God and my Savior. And so we just want to remind ourselves at the end of the day, it's not where we start that matters, guys. It's where we end. And if, the, if our family of origin is the only family we've got, we're in trouble. Scripture is clear on this. We won't develop this at, at any length. All of us go back physically to Noah. Got to go back to Noah. And we go to Adam. And so Adam is what we call our federal head. You all go back to Adam. And if Adam is the only ultimate forebear we have, we're in trouble because he died. He died. We need a new head. We need to come from a new fountain, a new source of life. And that's Jesus. He's the second Adam. So we want to make sure we're in that family. And that Jesus is the second Adam and he's the source of our life today. So that's the thing. So they're not saying we're all that because Jesus was our big brother. They're saying he's our God and Savior and he should be yours too. So that's the thing. He introduces himself not as Jesus' brother, but Jesus is my God and my Savior. That's where we want to go. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 say it this way. From now on, this is the Apostle Paul, we regard no one according to the flesh, our, our origin, what we were by mere birth, even though we once regarded Christ. We might have known Jesus back in the day, before death and crucifixion and resurrection. But he says that's not how we regard him now. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
James and Jude are focusing on it's the new that matters. It's new birth, it's new life in Christ. Acts 16.31, this is a great verse because have you guys, I've known one or two people who have said, someone came up to me and they said, how do I get saved? That does not happen very often. But that happened in Acts. And a guy asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In fact, he says, you and your whole household. This is not hard. We don't do something hard. Jesus did something hard. We trust him. We entrust ourselves into his saving and keeping care. So James was Jesus' brother by birth, but more important, James was a new creation in Christ and a member of God's family. And that's what counts. Not where we start, where we end. Okay, we want to get into the trials. That's the big rock in this passage. So if you look, starting with verses 2 through 4, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, James says you know. Now, we don't necessarily know this, right? He's writing it. Like, I might say to you, you know, but you may not know. So he's writing to say you, you know or you should know that the testing of your faith, it does something he says it produces steadfastness. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we'll, we'll fill in the, the blanks on what that means. The, the English and the Greek are a little different. So James' call to joy in trials is not something most of us take to initially. So what does he mean? So is James... Is he sort of an early form of the monastic call? I'm going to practice some form of asceticism. I'm going to purposely put some form of suffering on myself because I'm into suffering, that suffering is a thing in and of itself. And we say, well, not at all. Not at all. In fact, when it says, you know, count it all joy when the bottom falls out of your life, you say, what? Count it all joy, you know, when you're betrayed or when you can't pay the rent, or whatever it is, count it all joy. This sounds contradictory, doesn't it? James' call to joy when life is hard is because it's through such times that we grow. And guys, this really puts a premium on what God sees as the priorities in your life and mine. That God's priority is that we grow. It's that we don't stay where we're at. So, you know, when we're born again, we're in that new family, that forever family, God's family, through faith in Jesus. And that moment we are transformed by new birth, faith in Jesus, we get a new life, but we're just a spiritual infant. And God means for us to grow up into this fully formed, mature believer that looks like Jesus. And God says that one of the primary mechanisms he uses to help us grow are trials, our challenges, our temptations. Uh, count it all joy when you face trials. The word there is peros mois. Mois is the plural. That word is translated here as trials, but elsewhere, even in James 1, it's translated temptation. Same word. Seven times that word, either singular, plural, or as a negative, seven times is used in James 1. Synonyms of trial and temptation are to attempt, or a trial, time of testing, it's an experience, it's a proof of something, it's also adversity, affliction, trouble, so we could translate it a number of ways, the Greek word. Here are some sort of definitions. Uh, the trial of man's fidelity, that would be the trial of our faith, integrity, what are we 
all the way through, not just what we appear to be. Remember the reality check. What's our integrity? Are we the same all the way through? It's a trial of our virtue and constancy. That's one definition. Another is an enticement to sin, and that'll come up later here in this first chapter, an enticement to sin from internal or external source. So a trial might be a tough time, but a trial might be a temptation. Any situation, we can say generally, in which we may be pulled towards sin or toward righteousness, and we must decide which direction we'll go. If you're a fan of Robert Frost, you know, one of his most famous poems says, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood. I've got something in front of me. I've got to make a decision. I've got to go right or left. What do I do? Well, that's what the trial looks like, and that's what temptation is like too, isn't it? In Frost's poem, they're about the same, but for us, one's right and one's wrong. One honors God and one doesn't. So choose joy, James says, when life is hard, when you're tempted to sin, or thinking about finding the easy way out of a predicament instead of the right way. Choose joy, James says. Now, choose joy not because life is hard, but because with the challenge of the trial or temptation, God will make us grow. We'll gain spiritual strength, endurance. Trials are an important part. God uses to grow us up to become who we're meant to be in Christ. And guys, look at this. Look at verse 3. James says, trials produce steadfastness. You could substitute endurance, staying power, that when we're going through the challenging time, God means for us not to quit, not to stop, but to keep going. Uh, You know, if you're in training and you stop the training, the training's over, right? Well, in the trial or the temptation, James is assuming that we keep going through it. We don't sort of take ourselves out of it, excuse me, prematurely, that we're meant to endure it. And through that endurance, or James says here in the ESV, steadfastness, that does something for us that quitting early can't do. He says, look at verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness does something. It makes you perfect and complete so that you lack nothing. Now, if we say perfect, people are like, no one's perfect. It doesn't mean that. But perfect in the Greek means you're what you should be. It has to do with the sense of the end of a thing. So you become the fully mature, fully formed follower of Jesus that God means for you to. Or at least in that single trial, you've become through the trial what God means you to be through that challenging time. So it's not perfect without fault, without sin. That doesn't happen to us on the earth. But it means we grew up through the trial to that point of maturity God intended to bring us to through the suffering, through the trial, through the temptation. A complete means whole, healthy, without defect. I don't think this is on your study sheet, but Hebrews 12 says Jesus endured. You know, Hebrews 11 is all about the people who followed in faith. And you get to Hebrews 12, and it tells us that Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. We're called to follow Jesus just like that that we endure the challenge, the suffering, whatever that is, there's glory to come, doesn't feel like in the moment, doesn't feel joyful, but endurance produces Christ-like character and qualities. 
the Apostle Paul says almost this exact same thing in Romans 5. He puts it this way there. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now again, these guys are not ascetics. It's not because they, they like suffering. He says, because we know something, we know that suffering produces endurance. That when God takes us through the trial, we gain this character of endurance, of steadfastness. Endurance produces something. What does endurance produce? It produces character, Christ-like character. Character produces hope. Character produces hope. It, so, think of Jesus for just a minute. When he's going through his trial of suffering, he knows where the suffering leads, right? He knows that it leads ultimately to resurrection and to redemption for all of us, and borrowing on the women's event yesterday, and to his bride becoming fully his, the church, forever. So his, his face setting towards the suffering, there's joy behind it or above it, there's joy to come. And so that informed his suffering in the moment of what that suffering would bring. So Paul and James are both telling us, it's not that we love to suffer, it's that we understand God is doing something good in this, and we'll, we'll talk about a couple of verses here in just a second, that when we look back, we'll say, wow, I wouldn't necessarily like to do that again, but what a benefit I derived because God took me through that. The result of times of trials and temptations in God's hands is spiritual transformation and growth through perseverance. So, do we know and remind ourselves that God's primary goal in our lives is not? You know, God's goal in my life is not my comfort and ease. I love comfort and I love ease. I'm all over that. And guys, I truly feel so blessed all the time. Just God's common grace, the time and the place we live. I feel blessed all the time about comfort, ease, good food, naps. You know, I'm, I'm in for all of it. But, but is that God's primary goal for your life? Now, he's good, and he gives us all kinds of things to enjoy, right? God, the Scripture's clear about that. But that's not what he's after primarily. It, God's not after blue skies and green lights 24-7. That's not what helps us grow primarily. And did you know that the American dream of a lovely big house and the best appliances is not God's ultimate goal for your life? It's to be like Christ. That's God's goal. So you can go through times of abundance and ease and you can thank God and you can enjoy it and you can have joy in the moment. But when the trials come, if we take on Christ's understanding of God's goodwill, the joy is to say, Lord, even if I don't like this thing, even if what's going on in the moment isn't inherently good, I know that you're going to use it in a way that blesses me so I can say right now, in the midst of the trial, I can say, thank you now. I choose joy in the midst of suffering because of what you'll do with it. Even if I can't grasp what that is specifically, that's where all this is going. There's joy out of suffering. God's primary goal in our lives is transformation into the likeness of Christ. There's a dear brother, um, Marvin DeGroff was part of this church decades ago, and just one of my favorite people in the world ever. And uh, one of Marvin's sayings was something like this. I never get it quite right. The world is a lousy something. 
a good thing, you know. The world's a lousy something, but it's a great gymnasium. So it's, uh, maybe it's a lousy hotel or it's a lousy couch or whatever our thing of comfort is. It's lousy for that, but it's a great gym. And what did he mean? It's where we train. It's where we're transformed by training, by intentional discipline. We become something in the gym that we weren't otherwise because we're being trained there. And that's James' point and Paul's point about suffering. Romans 8.29 says this, Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. What is God's destiny for every Christian? What, what is the predestined will of God for every Christian? Every person who has had that new birth in Christ, it's not their family of origin, they're a child of God now. Where does all that lead? It's to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Think of this for just a second. And I don't know, we don't know what Jesus looked like, right? Now, Isaiah tells us, you know, there's nothing fancy about him. He, he didn't look like a bodybuilder. He wasn't, wasn't Hollywood handsome, nothing, nothing like that. But think of James and Jude for just a second. I wonder if when they were growing up, because they shared a common mother, they might have resembled Jesus physically. They, they, might, have, they might have looked a bit like older brother. So you might have said, well, we, we know they're related because look at them. And you know in some families, you look and you're like, I know who your parent is. Or I know, what, I know the person you're related to here. By the family resemblance. That's where they started. So maybe they looked a little like Jesus. and Maybe that's a thing when they grow up. The thing for us is, God says here, He is making us in our spiritual transformation, that new birth, He is making us look like Jesus in our character, in who we are, and what we are, not necessarily physical appearance, but we will look like Christ more fully than his siblings did, physically. We share his life and we'll share his character more fully, and that's occurring through trials and suffering. You know, one of the things, when you hear a message, and then multiply that if you teach the message, and it's like, Lord, I hope none of this is coming true for me in the short term. <laughs> I'm... I know what you're saying. <laughs> We've had some share of it already, but it's preparation, right? We may not need it in the moment. Some of us need it in the moment. Some of us will need it in the future. The ultimate purpose to which God intends all the trials and temptations of life is transformation into Christ's image. That's where all of it goes. And the Apostle Paul, along that line, uh, he compares the Christian life to an athlete in training. You have the references on your study sheet, 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Timothy Two and uh, I'll bet there's more than a few athletes in here, or former athletes. And so uh, Paul talks about wrestling and running. Uh, you know, if you're an athlete in training, you're serious. Your life conforms to whatever discipline it takes for your best performance. Uh, my friend Joe and I played basketball together in high school, and we were tall, our, this height in high school, and. 30 pounds lighter, for me, at least, 30 pounds lighter. We would go to the cafeteria, no kidding, at lunch, and our coaches asked us, please eat as much as you can, please bulk up. But guys, the, the, the guys I was sitting next to, no kidding, I was eating as much as I could. You know what they were eating? Hard-boiled eggs, celery sticks, and carrot sticks. You know what they did? Wrestled. Wrestled. You knew, you knew, absolutely. 
They were wrestlers. What did discipline look like for them? It meant basically some form of starvation. You know, and the, they did the sweatsuits back then and all that stuff is crazy. But the point, no matter which one, the guy that's denying himself food, the guys that are trying to eat more than we normally would, it was all about the training so that we could perform at our best level possible. So Paul says we should take that mindset that all of life works towards this goal, Christ-like transformation. That's the performance, is that I'm like Christ. That's everything in life is going towards that end. We want that mindset like an athlete has towards his performance. If we forget that God's goal for us is to be like Christ, and so he's causing and allowing all the hard things that enter your life, guys, you can become bitter. You can just you can walk away. You can be, become a small person. You can become hard and hard hardened and hard-hearted because I, I don't want to believe that God has allowed this. I don't want to accept that this is going on. Instead of saying, God, I may not like this, but I understand you're using this, and so I submit to you, and I take joy in the moment because you're doing something through this. I don't enjoy the thing, but I take joy in what you're, you've promised to do through it. That's the mindset that we want to have. If we remind ourselves that in this world of sin and death, God has given us a lifelong training session, we see life and trials and temptations differently. Think of this, guys. It doesn't matter who you are in the world. You're going to suffer. There's going to be trials and temptations and hard things that happen. The thing for a Christian is we have God's promise that he'll turn it upside down to our benefit. If you're not a Christian, there's no such promise. Life can go from bad to worse to dead and over. But if you're a Christian, we're promised more trouble too, by the way, right? Because we're Christ. You live in a world that rejected Christ. You don't get less suffering. You get more or more of a different sort. But it's redemptive. It's not the end. It's, it's, it's a step on the path to transformation. Amen. Hebrews 12.11, which is the same theme. You know, you get this repeated for a reason. We need to hear this over and over. Hebrews 12.11 says, all discipline. And there, it's the, thought of, uh, uh, it's the thought of growing kids God's way. It's the thought of child training. The training here is child training. Um... I had a conversation with somebody recently about what their, fa what their fathers looked like, what training under their father looked like, um, and how uh, he didn't mess with his dad, and I didn't mess with my dad uh, for, for a good reason. Well, the Hebrew writer says, all child training for the moment seems not joyful but sorrowful. My dad spanked me. I was sent to bed early. I was sent away from the table. I didn't get to eat supper that night. By the way, yes to Mike on all of those and, and more. Um, and it doesn't seem joyful in the moment. But he says, yet to those who've been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So I quit doing that thing because I was disciplined. And I don't like that. And I don't want to experience it again. I'm trained out of that. That's the thought in Hebrews, just like James. Our trials show us the ways in which we tend to sin. Again, remember that trial, the same word, is used for temptation. But James 1, 12 through 15, tells us 
when you face temptations, we'll talk about this specifically next time, God doesn't allow trials, temptations, in order that we will sin. But trials often show us that we do sin. So it's the same word. And it's the same word for this reason. You're showing what a thing is. The test shows what a thing is. Remember, James is a reality check. What do you really believe? What are you? How do you see trials and temptations? Do you take God's word for what he says about your trials and your temptations? This is the reality check. What kinds of trials and temptations are we facing? So little ones, big ones. Some we know are coming, some we don't. Trials with those we love most and those who don't like us at all. Trials in our homes, trials at work, trials at school, trials in our extracurricular activities. Believe it or not, trials in our church among those we worship with. We're, we're born for trials as surely as sparks fly upward. When trials rise, and they do and they will, we remind ourselves that this is part of our training. We embrace the pain of the moment, the suffering of the moment, not because we love the pain, but we, because we entrust ourselves to God's care and we trust him for the fruit that will be born of the pain. It's not the pain, it's what he does with it, for us, through it. There's a, on your study sheet, there's some questions there you can ask yourselves just about current trials or you can keep that for another day when you need it. But we need endurance in our trial. So we don't want to quit the race. We don't want to sit down and say, God, I'm not doing this. We want to stay. We want to endure. We need endurance. And we also need something else. And that is we need wisdom. When trials hit, we need God's wisdom. Verses 5 through 8. You know, one of the things that happens is the bottom falls out in some, some area of your life. And it's not a simple temptation where you say, I just choose A or B. I, I say no or I say yes. You know, some, some trials are like that. I just say no. Or I just say yes, I should do that. But others are, Lord, I don't know what to do. The bottom has fallen out and I don't know what I should do. I don't know what the way forward looks like. I have no idea what I should say or what I should do or what I should not say or what I should not do. Lord, I need your wisdom. I need you to tell me, to inform me, what do you want for me through this trial, through this temptation? What does that look like? Uh, some of the, I think everything I've got right here are true of people in Lion and Lamb Church. What do I say when my ch a child walks away from the faith and says, I'm not a Christian? I'm not following you. Uh, what do I say when my son tells me he's a girl or my daughter tells me she's a guy? What do I do with that? What's God's wisdom in that? How do I think about a situation in which I'm accused of something I haven't done, but there's no way to prove my innocence? I've just, I'm just accused. Lord, what do I do? What does that look like? How should I feel about times when I don't have resources required to meet needs? You know, the need of the moment is something I don't have, but I feel like I'm the responsible party. Lord, what do I do? What does this look like? How would the Lord have me respond to a need when I'm already feeling overwhelmed? God, I'm, I'm at and past my limit now, and another thing has come up. What in the world do you want me to do? 
James continues talking about trials, but now specifically regarding our need for his wisdom. James 1.5, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. So I'm in the trial. I don't know what to do. And James tells me, for God, ask me for the wisdom you need because I'm generous and I won't chide you and I won't, I won't reprove you. I'll give you the wisdom you need when the trial hits. You come, you come to dad, you come to your papa, you ask me for what you need and I'll give it to you. And, and I'm, I'm putting my word on this. You need wisdom and I'm good for it. James tells us, ask God for wisdom. Guys, no, uh, this is part trick question, part not. I'm just putting, okay, you're on the edge of your seat. So if you need wisdom in a trial, or someone you know needs wisdom in a trial, what's a good place that they might go to find some wisdom? The Bible. The Bible, wow! <laughs> we might, so, so if, if God's Word is in us, and we're in God's Word, we have a resource of wisdom already, don't we? Yes. Now, is it possible to memorize the Bible and still lack God's wisdom? Absolutely. You know, re religious people, you know, the, the folks that condemned Jesus, they knew their Bible, right? We say this, so read your Bible, it's important, but you've got to read it with the eyes of faith. You've got to be God's, right? So, but that's a starting point. Do we know what God has said and you know what often happens just along this line is, whether it's for you or for someone else, if you pray and you're just thinking about the trial, Lord, what, what do you say about this? Is this something Scripture speaks clearly to? God will often just bring it to your mind if you've already read it and know it. You know, your memory verse or you've been meditating in a Scripture and you pray and God brings up that text, oh yeah, that's what I should do. Or that is something I can share with somebody else who's in a trial right now. Now, we're careful when we offer advice because we may not know what God's up to. So we want to be careful when we offer advice. But when we can say, well, Scripture says this to this kind of situation, that's a thing. But we, we can know the Bible and still not know specifically what God wants in that specific trial. So we ask God for wisdom. Again, it might come from Scripture. It could come from a friend. It could come from another resource or, or outlet that we simply haven't anticipated. Yeah, it's ultimately the Holy Spirit is bringing it one way or another, one way or another. But to be sure, we've, we're steps up the ladder of, of having something of God's wisdom if we know what God has said about that kind of situation. You know, you've got books, we call a category of books in the Old Testament wisdom literature. So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, technically Song of Psalms, are all called wisdom literature. Why? Well, because they show us what God's wisdom looks like. Knowledge applied to life, God's wisdom, that's what it looks like. Hebrews 4.16 says this. So, so James says you, you need wisdom. Ask God. He's generous and he'll give it. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So Jesus is our high priest. He's gone to heaven. And that's where God's throne of grace is. And we're told, hey, draw near to that throne the throne of grace, why? That you can receive mercy and you can find grace to help in time of need. Lord, I need wisdom. What am I going to do? 
I'm going to get in prayer, and I'm going to do exactly what Hebrews 4 says. Lord, I'm drawing near. I'm humbling myself before you. I'm coming in Christ's name, and I'm asking you to give me the wisdom I need. I don't have it. I know you're good for it, and so this is where I'm coming. Guys, this is transformative. This is transformative. If, you, uh, if we have a pattern of facing trials and we just ug our way through, you know, you can get through them. You can endure, but you can, not, you can endure and not get what God wanted for you through it. You can come out the other end, and I didn't choose joy, and I didn't believe God was doing something good. I resented the whole thing. We endured, but we're not getting the benefit God wants for us. He wants us to have benefit. And if we go and we say, Lord, I need your wisdom, God says, I'm good for it, and I'll give it to you. Yep. Now, this request is qualified by James, and this is important. He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. So ask God for the wisdom. He'll give it to you. But ask in faith without doubting, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. He's unstable in all his ways. And we want to we get to where this is going, what the inference is here. Let me read just a little bit from Doug Moo. This is part of his commentary. He says this, the same combination of words, faith and doubting, occur in Jesus' teaching about prayer. This is from Matthew 21. He said, if you have faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, he'd cursed a fig tree and basically shriveled and died, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And we're going to qualify this in just a second. But Jesus says, when you ask, you ask in faith. Again, we'll qualify this in just a second. James points out that God wants to help us with our need for wisdom and that he does so generously and abundantly without ever chiding us that we need it in the first place. And in James chapter 3, one of my favorite passages, he tells us what God's wisdom looks like. He describes what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. So if we come to the Lord asking for wisdom on one hand... But on the other hand, we're not really confident he'll give what he's promised. What are we really saying? You've got to be saying one of two things. You either infer that he said something that he's not going to do, he's lying, or you infer that he committed himself to something that he can't, in fact, pull off, <clears throat> both of which are impossibilities. But that's the inference. Biblical faith is always predicated on God's word. Guys, this would be a whole other series, whatever, prayer, biblical faith related to prayer, requesting, etc. Biblical faith is always predicated on God's word. It is not faith in faith. It is not belief in your belief. The object of our faith is God and God's word. It's not us. So if you say, I believe, I believe, I believe, like the cowardly lion, that's not it. My faith is in God and what God has committed himself to do. Faith is saying, God, I know you're good to do what you've said you'll do. And the first and the primary example of this that gets brought up repeatedly in Scripture is Genesis 15, 6. So for the Jews and for us from New Testament, Abraham is the father of faith and the father of the faithful. And what did he do? He believed God. And what what? He didn't, this wasn't Abraham's idea, right? Abraham was a pagan. 
And God calls him and says, you, go over there. And he does. But you know what? He hasn't believed yet. He's obeyed, but he hasn't believed. So when the old man Abraham's too old to have a baby, we think, we know Sarah is. She's old. She's too old to have a baby. But God shows up in Genesis 15, and Abraham laments, gosh, I got no kid, you know, this is no good, Lord. And what's God say? He says, from you, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a child, and you'll have more descendants than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And what does it say Abraham did? Abraham believed God, and it was determined or credited to him as righteousness. Now, guys, how hard is it to believe a God who cannot lie? A God who has all power, whose will cannot be affronted in any way. You see where this goes. If God makes something crystal clear, and this is crystal clear, this isn't a stretch about, well, how do you apply that text? This says if you're in this situation, you're in a trial, you don't know what to do, you need God's wisdom, it says ask God and he will. This is black and white. If we're going to God and we ask him for wisdom in our trial, guys, he will give it. You can count on it. The only thing he says is, don't come to me insulting me that I may keep my word or I may not be able to keep my word. That's the thought here. It, 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 it's a disrespectful attitude towards God. So when we go to our dad, and this you see this throughout the New Testament especially, but if you... Uh, uh, if Jesus, Romans 8, sorry, if, if the father didn't uh, keep the thing he treasured the most in all the universe to himself in order to save you, so this is Romans 8, God gave Jesus, second member of the Trinity, the son of his love, he gave him up in death to save you. He's given up everything he loved to save you. Will he not give you trinkets? Will he, will he not give you spare change? You, you see the inference. That's what Romans 8 says. If he did this, it's a greater to lesser argument. It's logical. If he's done this, if he gave Christ, he'll give you this. It's not the lesser to the greater. Well, maybe, you know, he gave me that little trinket, but I'm not sure he'll give me the world. And it says, no, he gave you the world, so to speak, Jesus. He's willing to give you any lesser thing the greater to the lesser. That's the mentality we should have. He's given Christ for us. He won't withhold anything that he knows is good. Now, here's a qualifier, right? We're talking about James' passage in which the lack is wisdom for trial. God says, ask me and I'll give it to you. God will give us anything that he knows is for our good. He won't withhold any good thing. That's what the text says. Scripture says in Romans 8. No good thing will he withhold from us. If we're praying for something else and God hasn't given it to us, it's because he's, he knows it's not for our good. Okay, this is not a blanket. James is talking about wisdom for suffering and trial. So if we're praying for something and God doesn't give it to us, it's because he knows, at least in the moment, maybe he'll give it in the future, but at least in the moment, he knows it's not for our good. Because he's given Christ, he'll give anything that's of value and help for us. So biblical faith is always predicated on God's word. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Those who come to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. 
Without faith, we cannot please God. He's a God who cannot lie, who ties himself to his word. It's his integrity on the line when we come and say, Lord, would you keep your word? And would you do what you said? Well, of course I will. Psalm 46.1 and Romans 8.32 are on your study sheet. James' call here is to believe in fact what we say we believe. Real faith, real trust in God calms our hearts, stills our souls and our needs. But the double-mindedness and doubting because we don't really trust God, remember this is about a reality check. Do you really believe God? Do you really trust Him? Because if you do, you'll ask for wisdom and He'll give it. It's the reality check. Do we really believe what we say? James' reality check begins with our own hearts and minds regarding what we believe about God himself. There's some more texts on your study sheet. I'll let you look those up later. I'll close with this. Trials will come. Troubles will find us. Temptations will abound. And God will use every one of those for our good if we'll choose to see them as tools in God's hand to make us like Christ, the most glorious end possible to any trial and to any life. God's working for our good. Well, please stand and we'll close by reading Psalm 34, 15 through 18 together. Read with me, please. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Amen.